you've got your Bibles, open them with me to Galatians chapter 6. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never in nothing. Great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. In 1941, Winston Churchill gave a speech to the boarding school he attended 50 years before. Britain had already given up so much in its war against the Axis powers, it would have been easy to just surrender. What are we going to lose by being under Germany's rule? Or any of these other nations? We might as well. It would be better than dying. But Churchill's charge to these young men was to see this war through. And not to give up on the hard days. You may have heard this quote before. Uh, Many of you probably in your world history classes in high school may have heard that, or maybe in a middle school. But have you ever heard the end of this speech? I, I really love the end of this speech. Here's what he says. He says, these are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest days our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our stations, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race. Christian, you need to hear these words. Never give in. Do not yield to the might of the enemy. And don't feel bad for yourself in the midst of a long spiritual war. The battle may be hard, but the victory is inevitable. So these, these are not dark days. These are the greatest days in history. Even more so than Churchill would have imagined as he spoke those words. These are the greatest days in history. And God has given you a part to play. Christian. The message of scripture to the believer is much like Churchill's message to the Brits. Don't give up. and Never give in. The Christian life is not primarily one of pleasure and comfort. It's not primarily one of getting the things that you want, unless what you want is Jesus. The Christian life is primarily one of endurance and perseverance and grace. If we could only see the spiritual war waging around us, the way that those students in that boarding school could. At one point in 1940, that speech was given in 1941. At one point in 1940, London was bombed 57 nights in a row. That's unfathomable to us to consider the emotional toll of believing that at any moment, at any night, you could die from a bomb being dropped for 57 nights in a row. It was another five years from that time of the speech before the war was over. I think there's probably some in this room who might feel like you're in the middle of a 57-night blitzkrieg. And I wish I could say it's going to end soon or it's going to get easier. 
but I can't. The truth is I have something better. If you can receive it, I have something better. And this is it. Don't grow weary. Don't grow weary. The message in the middle of the bombing is not, it's going to end soon. It's don't grow weary. That's the main idea of our text today. Don't grow weary of doing good. Don't grow weary of doing good. We've, we've prayed several times already in the service, but we love prayer. So I'd like to, if you don't mind, I'd like to pray again. Would you pray with me? God, we know that so much of the spiritual warfare around us is unseen to us. But so much of it is seen. God, we feel the hurt. We feel the loss. We feel the grief every day. The toll of sin is so heavy on us. God, we want to be faithful. God, we want to not grow weary. Help us, Father, that you might look at us and say, this was a church that didn't give in. This was a church that never gave up. God, if that can be true for us, God, help it to be contagious as well. We're so grateful for a cross that gave us salvation, an empty grave that gave us salvation because of you. The cross is worthless without you on it. The the empty grave is worthless without you rising from it. We love you so much because you have loved us so much. God, help us as we look in this text today to be encouraged, to be convicted, and to turn towards you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 with me, if you would. This is what God's Word says. Let the one who is taught the Word share all good things with the one who teaches. We're going to go ahead and read through verse 10. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. As we look at verse 6, We see a call to share generously. Really, we see that in verse 6 and 10. To share generously. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. There's multiple layers of this. You could look at the context of Scripture and point to, uh, as a church, it's right to pay some to labor among us for the work of discipleship. That's what I do, you guys pay me for the work of discipleship and other staff members. We see that partnership as what Six points out here. Not as, and I, I would say that as a pastor, our job is less employment and more partnership. That I don't see myself as an employee of the church, I see it as a partner of the congregation. Uh, a lot of the way that I like to think of how I'm paid by the church is, the church says, hey, we see a gifting for you to disciple others And we'd like for you to do that with all of your time. (laughs) 
And so here, don't have another job. Do this with your time. That's the way we see, that's the way I see pastors. And as long as God has us fruitful in those positions, man, praise God. I'm so grateful for your partnership that I'm able to partner with you and that you partner with me. So we see that with our staff. 1 Corinthians 9 is a, is a really great text that establishes that idea. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9 verse 14 says, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. There's some context around that, but that's a pretty clear statement that we can take at face value. That those who are proclaiming the gospel, that there is a financial partnership that is good, that we share generously with those who teach the word. But that's not the only partnership here. It's not just a financial partnership. There, there's also an encouragement partnership. I mean, really, when I, when I first read this verse, I don't think financial. I think encouragement. When, in the life of discipleship, when the people that you're discipling come back with reports of what God has been doing in them and through them, man, share all that. Share all the good things with those who teach. That's, that's what puts wind in the cells and encourages is when there's reports of fruit. So part of, the, part of sharing generously is financial, but a lot of it is encouragement. I mean, just this week, I had a guy in the church share about someone coming to Christ in his office. Uh, man, get me going. He's not in here. I was going to point to him and see if he'd let me share the whole story. I'll wait till I get his permission. But what a good thing God does through his people. And that's a great encouragement to us as we see that Pastors are called to train and equip. Teachers are called to train and equip uh, so that the saints are equipped for ministry. And so when, when the training and equipping bears fruit in the lives of the people in the church, man, that is so good. That is sharing all good things when we get reports of that. If you want to share generously with me, tell me about how you shared the gospel this week. That's, man, come share generously, generously with me. I'd love to hear that. Come, come tell me about how God spoke to you in your quiet time, as you were reading the word, as you were praying, like what God's doing in your life. Look, that's not a burden for pastors and people who are investing in you. That's a joy. We love to hear those things. And type out an email. Send a text. Hey, here's something I'm learning right now. Man, what a great joy. Share all things with, those, with the one who teaches In, our, in, our, in the life of our church, that is elders. We have elders who teach. That's life group leaders. That's people in your D group. I mean, that is a, I would like to say that broadly, we can paint broadly with a brush there, that who is teaching in your life? Who is investing in you? Who is, who is giving you the truth of God's word regularly? Man, share with that person. Share all good things. Financially, encouragement. But here's another one. Share yourself. Part of sharing all good things is sharing yourself. I have an example of this, and I didn't ask for their permission on this either, but we had a young couple in our church watch our boys last night while Crystal and I went on a date. They shared themselves with us. We were gone a long time. <laughs> we were gone a really long time. So it was so kind of them. And it was people that we love dearly, and they shared themselves with us. As a part of sharing all good things, they were giving of their time, giving of their energy, giving of... Uh, themselves to bless us. So don't, don't underestimate the importance of in the lives of those who are investing in you and who you're investing in, not just things, not just encouragement, but also yourself, just the ministry of presence, being around. 
We should always have that stance of partnership and gratitude with those who are investing in us. I think about younger Christians. Are you just taking from the older Christians in your life? That can be possible, right? And I don't just mean that by age. I mean that as in maturity as well, right? How many times do we expect that someone comes into a discipleship relationship to give me things? And the right position is that we have gratitude for discipleship, but that we're also giving back, that we're partnering in discipleship. That, yeah, I might be growing in the faith as this person is discipling me, but what can I, how can I serve them? How can I share all good things with the one who teaches? I want to encourage you to look for ways to serve the people who are investing in you. Intergenerational discipleship can't just be a one-sided deal. The one receiving wisdom and instruction should be looking for ways to bless in return. So how can you share generously? And, and I'll, I'll, say, I'll end with this on sharing generously. Many times it can simply just be thoughtfulness. It's just thoughtfulness. It doesn't take a lot of hard work to share all good things with those who love you and who you love. I mean, what about a short note of appreciation in the mail every, every once in a while? What about an invitation to something you do for fun? Like, hey, I'm going to do this thing. Come along with me. And, and I'm, I wanna be, I'm not like asking for invites, 100%. I'm thinking of the people in your life who are investing in you, your D groups and your life groups. That's where I'm thinking, hey, come along. Let's do these things together. Don't always wait for the invitation. Be the one who gives the invitation. Be the one who blesses just by your presence. Let's continue on in verse 7. Do not be deceived, God says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Look, you need to sow carefully. You need to sow carefully. Verse 7 is a powerful warning and statement. Sow carefully and be honest with yourself about what you're sowing. The seed that you're sowing. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes words lose meaning when you say them or look at them enough. But when we're talking about sowing, I mean, we're talking about what, what are we investing our life in? What are we giving our life to? Well, sow carefully. Invest your life carefully. God's design is that your actions have consequences. That, that's a good design in this life, that your actions have consequences. That's not just something your parents told you to scare you. That's reality. <laughs> actions have consequences. You plant an apple seed and an apple tree will grow. You might think that you can do whatever you want and still reap the reward of a faithful life, but that is mocking God. That's an important, that's important for us in our cultural moment, in our, in our society. How many people have this false sense of hope in eternity because they were baptized once when they were little, but have never surrendered to Christ, but have never called on the name of Christ for their salvation? They place all their hope in a past event of their own work, not in the work of Christ in the past and in the present. It's Christ who is saving us now. 
Look, you can't do, you can't live an unrepentant life that is not in keeping with the spirit inside of you and still reap the reward of a faithful life. Here when God says he is not mocked, a way to think about that is that really when we mock God, we're calling him a liar. And and that that happens in a couple different ways. One, we're calling him a liar because of his promise. We're saying, God, your, your promise isn't really true. If it was true, I would go along with you. If you really gave eternal life, if, if denying myself and following after you was good, I would go along, but it's not. You're lying to me. It's also mocking God by calling him a liar based on his authority. God, I, I, you're not actually powerful enough to do what you say you will do. You're not actually big enough to work things out the way that you say you could work things out. So what do we do? We mock God. We mock God by doing whatever we want, by living in our sin, by living unrepentant, by wanting things far from Christ. We sow the wind. Whatever you sow, you will reap. That's the message of verse 6. Share generously. You're both investing in each other, so share generously. That's reaping what you sow. Now it's also the message of verse 8. How will you invest your life? Where will you sow your life to? Look at the text. The one who sows to the flesh, which is our sinful nature. It's our sinfulness is what that's saying. If you sow to just the sinful desires of your heart, the one who sows to the flesh will reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life. Those are, those are the connections there. Sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. Sow to the Spirit, and you will reap eternal life. If those are the options, then a really helpful question is, how can I know what I'm doing? How do I know if I'm, if I'm sowing the spirit, to the Spirit, or if I'm sowing to the flesh, if I'm investing in the flesh? But don't forget, this text isn't in isolation. One, one, of the, one of the drawbacks of preaching verse by verse through a text is that sometimes we can like believe we've clipped this passage and it just is all by itself. But it's not all by itself. What we're reading today is a part of a letter, right? It's a part of this letter to the Galatians that's had now, in our breakup of this letter, five chapters before it. So there's a substantial amount of work that Paul's done, and if you've been here with us every week, then you've heard that work. This is still understandable without that. But we need to understand the context to understand this. So here in context, what is sowing to the flesh? What is sowing to the spirit? Paul's already given us this information. He's given us exactly what we need to know to know how we're investing our lives. So flip back over. It may not be much of a flip for you, but uh, to chapter 5. We're looking at chapter 5. Look at verse 19. So what what is sowing to the flesh? What is sowing to the flesh? Galatians 5, verse 19. Paul is answering this question for you. He's already, done the, he's already laid the groundwork for you to know the answer to this. Here's what sowing to the flesh is. Now the works of the flesh, right? It's, it's just, he's making those connections for us. Now the works of the flesh are evident. In, even in saying they're evident, you don't need a whole lot of help to know what the works of the flesh are. So many of us, even before we were ruled by Christ in our hearts, understood because of common grace, because of the work of the Holy Spirit bringing us to conviction that we were living in sin. 
So it's, it's evident, but here it is. Here's what is evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I think we can do a a survey of our lives and and recognize if we're contributing, if we're sowing to the flesh. Does our life look like the work of the flesh? Do you keep turning up over and over and over on this list with with no repentance? So that's the work of the flesh. But look, he keeps going. And in verse 22, we get what is the work of the Spirit? What is sowing to the Spirit? Verse 22 says in chapter 5, but the fruit of the Spirit. Look, it's just a contrast. Look at the contrast of sowing to the flesh and sowing to the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Which of these lists does your life look like? When you think of yourself, do you, which, which of these, if you're being honest, so much, of, so much of faithfulness to Christ is being honest with yourself. That's where it starts, right? That I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. Just being honest with yourself. Where are you? Where are, you? are you sowing to the Spirit or sowing to the flesh? If I could put this contrast even more simply, here's how I would say this. Sowing to the flesh is giving yourself control. Sowing to the flesh is giving yourself control to do what I want. God, I'll take the reins. I'll take it from here. Let me do what I want. Sowing to the Spirit is giving God control. God, you have the reins. Do what you want, God. I'll follow in your steps, God. Even if it hurts, even if I don't like it, even if it hurts other people's perception of me, God, I will follow after you. Are you giving yourself control in your life? Or are you giving God control in your life? Every Christian, every Christian comes to the point where they realize that their decisions are leading them to hell and they need a new leader. And we're bad at leading ourselves. We want to be good at it. We like to think we're good at it, but we're not. We're like that one person in the choir that always thinks they're so good and they're not. And the Bible stands here saying, this is the truth. This is the truth. You're not good enough. So every Christian comes to that point. We need a new leader. And it's by God's grace that we can realize this truth. What a good gift of God that he brings us to this point that we know we need help. And that's what Romans 10.9 says. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. How? Confessing in the mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Not by your works. This is not your works that saves you. It's the work of Jesus that saves you. But it's making Jesus your Lord. That word Lord there is the same word as master. It means he has full control. Who has control of your life, Christian? Well, if you are a Christian, there's only one right answer. There's only one person who can be in control of your life, and it's not you. It's not me. It's only Jesus. He gets complete control. He is Lord of our life. 
That happens because of the belief in our heart. The belief that the Spirit brings to us. That we have the Spirit inside of us. Leading us to surrender. It's sanctification. That more and more, every day of our life, we're becoming more like Christ. It's possible, if you're listening right now, that you might reap eternal life. Doesn't that sound too good to be true? Doesn't that sound like something out of Lord of the Rings or Chronicles of Narnia or Harry Potter where it's like, if only we lived in that world where there could be an eternal life. All of those works of fiction want to reach to what is true. They wish. J.K. Rowling wishes she could have written a story as beautiful as what is true. There is hope for eternal life for you. Because of what Jesus has done. Because Jesus took the cross with your sins and rose again, we can have eternal life. If you're not a Christian, I just wonder, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Be honest with yourself. You know your sin isn't satisfying you. I would challenge you, anyone in this room who's not a Christian or listening, you know your sin isn't satisfying you. It's just holding you over until the next time. And my guess is that that makes you feel pretty empty. It might even make you feel kind of worthless. What is this life? It makes your life probably feel void of value. But Jesus is the water you drink and never feel thirsty again. Jesus is the one who satisfies completely and wholly. As Christians, we've tasted that the Lord is good. We've tasted and seen this, this water. So we love to give our lives to him. We live in surrender because we love to surrender. Submission to Christ is easy and good because he has proven himself good to us. I want to be clear here, though. As Christians, we don't get free passes from hurt or sadness or feeling empty. And that happens to us, too. Right? I mean, can we be honest, Christians, that that happens to us, too? The difference is that we're filled with faith and hope because of love. Like, even in, our, even in those hard moments, we are loved by Jesus because we trust him. We are loved by Jesus because he loves us, because he's good. It's not because we've earned his love. It's because he's loved us out of his goodness. So Christians know that suffering is temporary. But we, we experience suffering different than someone who might be here and not a Christian. We know our feelings of emptiness are momentary. That it's a momentary condition. We set our eyes on Christ and we persevere. We endure. Because Jesus has set a joy before us that surpasses the trinkets of the world. There's a lot of trinkets in this world that look like relationships, that look like a boyfriend, that look like approval, that look like things, that look like wealth, that look like all kinds of sin patterns as well. We set our eyes on Christ as Christians. We endure. And that is why we can approach verses 9 and 10 with great victory. Look, at, look with me in verses 9 and 10. And let us not grow weary of doing good. 
For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Never give in. Never give in. Never. Never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never yield. Because we are winning this war. Christian, we're winning this war, so stay strong. The message of verses 9 and 10 is stay strong. It's never give in. It's don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't give in to the exhaustion and the anxiety that lays hold of you. Keep doing good. Keep sowing in the Spirit, even when it feels too difficult, because there's reward coming. The harvest is coming, right? You sow seed to be able to reap a harvest. Church, the harvest is coming. For those of us who are storing up treasures in heaven, sowing to the Spirit, that harvest is our great hope that we might be able to be with our great treasure, that we'll spend forever with Jesus. In due season, we will reap what has been promised, which in verse 8 is eternal life. Jesus proclaims that he is the life. So eternal life is our presence with Jesus forever. It's fellowship with Jesus forever. That is our great reward. That is what verse 8 is promising to us, that we might be able to be with Jesus forever. Think about Churchill had to have known that some of the boys he was speaking to in that speech would die on the battlefield. He knew that war wasn't almost over. He knew he was going to be sending some of those young men to die. That those precious lives would end in defense of Britain. And really for all his rhetoric, Churchill didn't know that Britain was going to win that war. He had no way to know. And he still cheered on the troops. And he still rallied the nation to never give up. Church, I keep coming back to it. We know how this war ends. We know that our God wins. And it's not even close. Like it's not, it's not up for debate. It's not close. The war is actually already won. You think about it, Jesus didn't say it will be finished. He said it is finished. Whatever darkness you are in, whatever valley you feel is inescapable, whatever pit feels like death to you right now, the call of Christ is don't give up. Don't give in. Don't grow weary. Maybe you've been trying to do good. That's what the text is calling us to. Don't, don't grow weary of doing good. Maybe you've been trying to do good. Maybe you feel like you've been blessing people and giving 100% to others and just no one's giving it back to you. And maybe you feel that way in your home. Maybe you feel that way with your friends. Maybe you feel that way with your church. You might feel like no one cares for you like you care for them. You can't tell me that's not defeating. It's so defeating when you feel like you're the only one giving the great effort. But the text calls us to not grow weary. Don't give up. Don't grow weary of doing good. If you're the only one, don't grow weary. If people aren't serving you like you're serving them, don't grow weary. If you need more from the others in your life, don't grow weary. That doesn't mean sweep it under the rug. Have those conversations. Speak openly and honestly. Like We want honesty in these things. But don't give up. Don't be the one who says, I'll treat them like they treat me. That's not the call of Scripture. We're to love our enemies. We're to treat the ones who treat us terribly like Christ has treated us. 
So don't give up. Instead, reposition your thinking. Discipline your thinking to focus on eternity. And consider the joy set before you. Church, consider the joy set before you. When you feel like giving up, think of eternity. Think of Christ. When I was in high school, I worked for a guy named Chuck Clary. He had a banquet facility. You know, my, it's like a, I think it's called like the carriage house or something now. We would do parties there. And I remember we'd have to clean the bathrooms up after the end of the night. And Chuck would always say, I want to be able to eat out of that toilet. <laughs> like, clean, it, clean it good enough that I can even eat out of it. And no one wanted toilet duties. <laughs> we know, I mean, you guys, I wonder how many of you had high school jobs uh, where this was, you had to clean it. Maybe some of you are still there in these jobs where you're like doing the grunt work. And that's okay. But how many times I, did I clean that toilet bowl so that Chuck could eat out of it? Like, I, I didn't. I didn't do it so the bowl would be clean. I did it because I wanted to put gas in my car. Like, I knew if I didn't do what I was asked, then I, I would lose my job. So I did it for the joy set before me of getting to hang out with my friends later. Now, I hope, as Christians, we also might be able to think that Someone's going to sit on this toilet, and I've made it clean. Like, it's, a, it's an act of worship that I've done something well. I've done a job well. But in high school, many of us are just thinking, I, I just want to get the gas in my car. You do good to your classmates, your family, even your enemies, because Christ loves you. That's the, that's the gas in your car. It's because Christ loves you. Why am I doing these miserable things to serve others? Why, why do I have to fold the clothes? Why do I have to wash the dishes? Why do I have to listen to your long story? Because Christ loved us. And so, you know, now maybe washing dishes isn't, isn't that bad. Because I'm thinking, like, I want to love others the way Christ has loved me. I'm doing this for his glory. I'm doing it for his joy, for the joy I have in him. Jesus loves you. He loved you enough to die for you and he will love you forever. And we as Christians love to honor Jesus who suffered and bled to make us his own. So we do good to others. And I really believe we start enjoying serving others as Christians. We start looking for opportunities as verse 10 calls us to. We look for opportunities because we know the why. The why of serving is that our God is a God who served us. He's a God who serves us. We don't begrudgingly do good. We eagerly do good. Paul puts that why into our good works in 1 Corinthians 15. You might even flip over. 1 Corinthians 15. It's not that many books back. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 56 and 58. It's a really helpful connection. Verses 15, 56 through 58. The why in our good works. Really all of verse 15 helps in connecting to this. But look at verse 56 specifically. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Our Galatians is setting us aside from the law. It's giving us to Christ over the law. But here. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's really Galatians in a verse. Verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore. Verse 58. Therefore my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable. Do you see that? Never give up, never give in. Don't grow weary. 
Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why do you labor? Why do you endure? Why do you persevere when it would be easier to give up? Because in the Lord it's not in vain. Because he has crushed death. Because he has won the war. So we serve with full hearts, expectant of our eternity with him. One of our greatest challenges is to see our chores as opportunities to do good for the sake of Jesus. We don't see them as musts. We see them as opportunities to see the boring and mundane as not in vain. It's not in vain. Sometimes serving in the kids area doesn't feel like doing good. Sometimes it just feels like fulfilling a responsibility. You told someone you would. Sometimes obeying with a good attitude when your parents ask you to do something doesn't feel like doing good. It feels crushing. I'd rather have my way. Sometimes doing the dishes doesn't feel like doing good. But that's just a matter of worship, really. What feels like doing good is a matter of worship. Who are you worshiping? In what moments, who are you worshiping? So, will you sow to the Spirit or to the flesh? Let's finish this last with verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So stay strong as you do good. But here Paul says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. We're to do good to everyone. Church, we should be known by our good works, by our love for others. The, the community should say, look at provision. Look at the way they love the people around them. It should be very easily known of us that we love to serve the people around us. Not just by our big events, but by what you guys are doing in your lives every day. I wonder if we're good neighbors. I'm not a good enough neighbor. I wonder if we're good friends. I wonder if Provision Church people, Provision Church, the individuals that make up the church, I wonder if we're known for our goodness to others. Or does it take having an event so that people can notice us? (laughs) Events aren't bad. But are we known by our good works? However, there's a specialness Even though we're to bless everyone, to love everyone, there's a specialness to being in the family of God. It's a unique gift and a blessing that makes us brothers and sisters. We shouldn't overlook the uniqueness of being able to call each other brothers and sisters because of the blood of Christ. That's good. My sister's in this room right now. I look out for my sister. As much as I love you guys, church, my sister's going to get a little preference because she's my sister. That should be that way in the church as well. Right? That we look at each other and we're like, man, how can I bless my church? We love our family in Christ. We love our family in Christ. It's not theoretical. This isn't theoretical. This isn't rhetorical. God has made us his children. More real than the blood that my sister and I share is the blood of Christ that saves us for eternity. So if you're looking for a starting place to do good, it's always smart to look at your brothers and sisters. As a church, we should be constantly asking the question, how can I do good to those who are in the household of faith? And this can be difficult because this can make us feel and act very inward focused. It's a challenge to the church to live in the tension of caring with special care for those who are in the body and being sent out with a relentless passion to make disciples. 
If we're going to be a church that makes disciples who makes disciples, we're going to be sending and sending. But we can't be a church who makes disciples who makes disciples if, we, if we're not a Christ-centered community. Unless we're taking care of who God has given us as brothers and sisters. We'll never send well. Why would the church want something like that? It's a part of who we are. A Christ-centered community driven by the joy of the gospel to make disciples who make disciples. In truth, these, this tension of caring for those in the church well and being sent out to make disciples, they're not disconnected. Our care for each other should be a part of how we make disciples. I mean, even as we, as a church, aim to plant in the near future, we care deeply about being obedient to Galatians 6.10. Church, it's not an either-or. It shouldn't be an either-or. Can we care for our own or can we send out? It's yes and. Both and. Yeah, we, this is who we are. We reach the lost. We, we, we look outside of the walls of a building and we say we want the world to know Christ. And we want to love our brothers and sisters well too. Stay strong in good works, church. Be steadfast. Be immovable. If you're not a Christian, I want you to experience. I want you to experience how mundane things can be redeemed by the joy of Jesus. But more than that, I want you to experience eternal life with Jesus. I mean, experiencing the goodness of Jesus in this life is good. But we're promised that the next life is going to blow our wildest expectations out of the water. I want that for you. I want that for you. Jesus is the prize of our faith. He is the true prize of life. In fact, he doesn't make room for any other prize. There's one prize. And the consequence for rejecting Jesus is real. And it's terrible. The Bible teaches us that hell is real. You might have people in your world trying to gloss over that and tell you that's not real. The Bible doesn't, it's not like controversial. It's there and easy. Hell is real as a consequence. It's what we choose when we reject Christ. But Jesus is calling you this morning. He doesn't want you to be apart from him. He wants you to be with him. He made you to fellowship with him. He made you to be with him. So he's calling you. He's calling you to surrender. He's not calling you to give him a little bit. He's calling you to give it all. To surrender to him. To believe that he is the only way for salvation. So that's my last question for you all this morning. It's the same for the believer and the one in this room who doesn't believe in Jesus. Will you surrender? Will you surrender? Jesus wants control. Christian, from you too, Jesus wants control. He's not going to settle. He's not going to settle for less. So sow to the Spirit. Invest your life in the things of God. Don't grow weary of doing good. Never give in. If you have questions... Like, I hear you talking about Jesus. I don't know what to do next. Or you're like, look, I've been holding on to things and I want to surrender. Jim's going to be at the back. Jim Corth, who led us in communion this morning, he's going to be at the back. and He's going to love to talk to you. And I say this a lot. There's so many Christians in this room. I, I bet if you turn to your neighbor and ask, hey, are you a Christian? Would you talk to me through this? They would love to do that. There's no shortage of who you can talk to about these things. But be brave. Talk about it. Turn to Christ. 
Can I pray with you? Father, we love you. We love your plan. We love your design. We love that you're good to us even when we're not good to ourselves. That in our days of darkness, in our days of hopelessness, that God, it's not dark in your presence. It's not hopeless in your presence. God, I pray more than anything for our church that we would have fellowship with you. That we would be filled with all of your fullness. That in our hearts and minds that we would be constantly trying to be more like you, more with you. God, make us a church of prayer. Give us that desire. Give us that yearning to talk with you. God, make us a church of the book, of the Bible. God, help us to be a church that would not substitute anything else for the goodness of your word. God, make us a church that makes disciples and loves each other well. God, we want to honor you. We want to be faithful. So help us to that end. Father, we do love you. We thank you that you sent Jesus to save us. We thank you that there's a promise that he is coming again to take what is his. So we pray that you return soon. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.